Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in FDA compliance, civil litigation, criminal defense, and the cannabinoid industry. Learn more today at therodmanlawgroup.com. Thanks also to Extract Labs. Based in Boulder, Colorado, Extract Labs is dedicated to introducing consumers to the use of CBD through product education. More about products grown from American hemp at extractlabs.com. From Colorado Public Radio and PRX, this is On Something. First, it just started out as a recreational thing, especially when I was younger, playing football, playing sports, and then just coming from my background, it was just a a way for me to calm my nerves and that type of thing. This is Angelo Leslie. He lives in Chicago. And then it grew from me, like, smoking a lot to just figuring out, okay, if I'm wasting all this money, you know, buying this, how can I somehow become not just a consumer, but also a distributor as well? And it kind of went from there. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when the modern war on drugs began, or whether it truly began with President Nixon or President Reagan, but whenever it did. It was long before 25-year-old Angelo Leslie had ever been born. At this point, I'm in group homes, and, you know, I'm going to school. I'm in the suburbs now. I'm going to school, and everybody has nice stuff, nice clothes, and, you know, everybody's looking at me like, oh, like, you know, kind of, I'm kind of being made fun of because I didn't have, like, the shoes. I didn't have, you know, all that stuff, like, that they had. So I'm like, man, how can I make money? Because we were getting an allowance, but it was like $10 a week, like mm-hmm. every Friday. And I was just like, man, what am I going to do with this? Like, that's how I was already thinking at like 12 right. years old. Like, what am I going to do with $10? So one of my friends, his brother was selling weed. So I was like, man, like, dude, like we smoke a lot. So let's just see if we can sell it. And we tried it for a week. We made like 200 bucks. The war on drugs. Generations of policy choices that aggressively criminalize drug use would intersect with Angelo's life a handful of times. And it's not in Angelo's past, either. In spite of a growing trend of legal weed in states, the war on drugs is still alive and well today. And the people caught in the crossfires are most often black or brown. According to the nonprofit Drug Policy Alliance, nearly 80% of those in federal prison for drug crimes are black and brown. In state prisons, it's about 60%. And now that weed is legal in lots of places, most of the people making money off of it are white. So this is not indicative of, like, the person that I am, Of right? course not, yeah. But I just want to put that disclaimer out. But I, I used to hustle, like... Like, because like how I grew up, man, it was just like Mm -hmm. nobody did anything for me. So nobody taught me like how to go get a job or do any of that positive stuff, I guess you could say. In states where weed legalization is under consideration, there's an increasing sense that just legalizing weed is not enough. That it matters how we do it. And more and more states like Illinois are trying to legalize in a way that benefits communities of color. The same communities that had lost a lot in the war on drugs. 
That means that the same thing that got Angelo arrested, dealing pot, could now be a viable career option for him post-prison. It's the idea that weed should be legalized with an eye towards repairing what's been broken, forgiving past marijuana convictions, and providing a leg up to people of color who want in on the legal weed business. That leg up could be a way to create wealth in Black communities, where families tend to earn one-tenth of the wealth of the average white family. That's why Angelo is calling his weed delivery service Green Dynasty. How did you come up with the name Green Dynasty? Because <laughs> I like the narrow, which is green, and I'm trying. <laughs> and I'm trying. I'm trying to create a dynasty here. This is not just some stuff I'm just doing for like the next five to ten years. This is I'm trying to create something that's generational. And Angelo feels like this shift towards social justice when it comes to marijuana legalization will be a way for black men like himself to create generational wealth. We want people to understand that this is just bigger than the cannabis industry. This is this is this goes on this goes along the line of prison reform. Um, this this goes. Uh, it's, it's it's really deep for me. It's it's really deep and personal. This is on something. Stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne Marie Awad. On this podcast, we tell stories about people and weed, specifically about people who can be left behind once weed becomes legal. And in order to tell this story, Natalie Moore is joining us for this episode. She's a reporter for WBEZ in Chicago, and her beat is the south side of the city a predominantly black area in one of the nation's most segregated cities. I felt like the news media covered the South Side, as well as the West Side, black neighborhoods through a singular lens, and mm-hmm. that is violence. And not and there's an invisibility of working class and middle class black folks. Um, I still think there's an invisibility at large in in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I cover a lot of policy issues, but I also want to show the life and the joy of Black Chicago as well, that it's not just, here's another terrible policy that is keeping home values down or whatever that is. Natalie has also written a book called The South Side, A Portrait of Chicago and American Segregation. She's also a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, and she introduced us to Angelo. Uh, yeah, the west side of Chicago is, is where I'm from. It's pretty messed up over there. What's messed um, up about it? Just the stuff that goes on. You know, obviously the crime rate, you know, the shootings, the gangs, and all that type of stuff. It's just not a, um, a positive environment for you to grow in, mm-hmm. especially as a, as a child. Angelo Leslie was born straight into Chicago's foster care system. So I didn't even know that, you know, I had a family until I was like around 10 years old. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Until well into his teens, he was moved from foster home to foster home, later on living in group homes when he was in high school. Angelo remembers one particularly traumatic experience. I was in that home for six years, and I thought that was my real mother up until, like, I was five, and she was dark-skinned, and I was light-skinned, and I didn't look nothing like her. Angelo says when he asked her about it, she got physically abusive. And then I tried to tell my caseworker, and, you know, I'm still a young child, so they just thought I was just, like, crazy, crazy. 
and nobody believed me, and that went on for years. And by the way, the Illinois Department of Child and Family Services does have a record of investigating allegations like Angelo is describing around this time. Officially, the investigation was unfounded, but not all the records are available anymore because so much time has passed. So we don't know much more than that. Angelo says it was years before Child and Family Services finally intervened and placed him in a new home. I kept trying to tell people to one day, it was two weeks before my birthday, and because my birthday's in January. So it's really cold here in Chicago in January, mm-hmm. as you know. And um, I somehow got you know, out of the, you know, ties that she had me tied up with. And I ran away and I didn't have any clothes on because she took all my clothes. All I had was a little towel I had found in the cellar. And I ran to a church and um, I hid under the church van and somehow I went to sleep. And that morning, um, the church people, they thought I was a little baby because I wasn't growing or anything because I wasn't like properly being nourished or, you know, stuff like that. And the police came, Chicago police came, and they seen that I was a, I was bigger than a baby, but I was really small. And they I wouldn't come out because I was scared. So they poked me with their nightsticks to like I came out. And that's when they seen like all like the, the marks and the bruises and the cuts. And they took me to the hospital. And that's the only reason why I left the house. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Yeah, it is what it is. It's, it's It was bad, but I feel like it's other kids that go through worse. Actually, a lot of kids die. Experiences like this had a real impact on Angelo's mental health when he was a kid. Um, I was going through a lot emotionally and mentally. Um, people didn't really understand what was going on with me. And obviously I was labeled as a, a troubled kid or a problem problem child, anger issues. But really, I was just confused. I didn't really understand um, why my life had ended up like that. By the time he was in high school, he was starting to run into other types of health problems. They had me on like six different types of medications, right? And it got to be so bad, like my liver was starting to shut down. Angelo passed out in his high school's bathroom one afternoon, and then he woke up in the hospital. After that, he stopped taking all of his medications and just kept medicating with weed. He says even now, it's the only medicine he uses. So, like, health-wise, dude, like, it helps me sleep because, like, I I suffer from PTSD and insomnia and stuff like that. So it helps me sleep, even if it's only, like, three, four hours, you know, every day. That's still more than what I was getting, right? right? Um, I have, like, major back issues that helps me with that. So it's medically, for me, it's just, like, so useful. And I don't have to take pills. I don't Mm -hmm. have to take medication. You know, like, that's what it is for me. Angelo ended up getting arrested twice while he was a teenager, both times for possession with intent to sell. Then he racked up a felony for fraud. That landed him in jail for three years, a sentence he just completed last year. And those criminal convictions became a real obstacle to finding housing or a job once he was out. I tried McDonald's, I tried Arby's, I tried Walmart, I tried Myers. Well, Myers gave me a shot, but then once they hired me for a week, they did my, my background check. After they hired me, then they fired me. So he tried another avenue, medical marijuana, which was legal in Illinois starting in 2014. But no matter how many jobs he applied for at pot businesses, he couldn't even get in the door. I couldn't even get an interview. No. Wow. 
Even though, even though I'm as knowledgeable as anybody in this industry Mm -hmm. about the industry. We know that people who are released from prison have a hard time finding jobs. They have Mm -hmm. a hard time finding housing. They have a hard time reintegrating into society. This is Natalie from WBEZ again. And so he had a job and it was going well. And then his record came up and he wasn't able to keep that job anymore. Uh, Unemployment is already high for black men in the age range that Angelo is in. And if you put a conviction on top of that, it's really hard to find work, especially Mm -hmm. in the city. And so Angelo had another idea, start his own weed business. For me personally, owning my own business just eliminates people having to tell me no. Like people stopping Mm -hmm. me from making my money. Like that's where, that's why it's important for me personally. Mm -hmm. And this new way of thinking around legalization in Illinois is the key to why he can do that. It's not just about making it legal to smoke weed. It's about helping the Angelos of the world get a foothold in a billion-dollar industry. Legalization of adult-use cannabis brings an important and overdue change to our state. And it's the right thing to do. In June, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a law to legalize recreational marijuana. It goes into effect on January 1st, 2020. That makes Illinois the first state to legalize recreational weed through the legislature as opposed to putting the question directly to voters. Criminalization offers nothing but pain, disruption, and injustice. In the past 50 years, the war on cannabis has destroyed families, filled prisons with nonviolent offenders, and disproportionately disrupted black and brown communities. The law contains an ambitious social equity provision. Its purpose is to make sure that communities that were targeted by the war on drugs get something more than just legal weed out of legalization. There are a few ways that this law tries to accomplish that goal. Natalie says one of them would aim to help areas like the West Side, where Angelo is from. It's a way to give some funds to disadvantaged communities, giving resources to community groups that were disproportionately impacted by violence, poverty, over-policing, et cetera, related to cannabis-related laws. Then there's a provision that deals specifically with the criminal justice system. So there are a lot of elements to the social and criminal justice reform that's part of the marijuana legislation. So one, it seeks to undo the past harm by expunging Mm -hmm. your records. There is a lot of relief in this law for people with marijuana convictions, but it's really complicated and it depends on the amount of weed that you were caught with. So Angelo was able to seal a misdemeanor possession charge. It's not the same thing as expungement, but it does make a big difference for him. It means that that conviction will no longer raise a red flag in a background check. And I just read an article that says that they think 770,000 cases would qualify for this expungement. So that's the criminal justice part. And finally, there's a portion of the law that provides a leg up to people like Angelo who want to enter the legal cannabis industry. 
So the new law establishes a social equity applicant, and that's a person who was arrested or convicted of a minor cannabis offense, or if you're related to someone who was. Then there's a cannabis business development fund that's $30 million, and that's paid for by licensed cannabis businesses that operate during this transition period. And that fund is to help with job training, offset fees, give low interest loans and grants. Those social equity applications are not open yet. But Angelo is trying to get his business up and running before January 1st, when the new law takes effect. Then, by the time that he's ready to apply, he'll already be established. Although, he'll also be competing with other applicants by then. Someone like Angelo would definitely qualify as a social equity applicant, but he doesn't want to wait around for that application process to open next year. He says, let me start a business plan. Let me get started now. And so he sees transportation as a foot in the door. Transportation. That's right. Weed delivery. Now, there are already huge companies offering weed delivery in other legal states like California. But Angelo says this law gives him a fair fighting chance against the competition. So this is why this equity part is so important, um, because how else are you going to how else are you going to win? Mm-hmm. Right. If they have the money to drown you out immediately. So, yeah, it's it's, it's going to greatly change a lot of at least the immediate 50 people that I know that are looking to get into this right. business. It's, it's, it's going to it's going to do a lot. At least give everybody a fair shot. And that's not to say that everybody is going to actually be successful. Right. But that's not the point. The point is, is that at least you have a shot. At least you have a chance. Right. Right now, Green Dynasty, that's Angelo's business, is based out of his apartment in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago right near the University of Chicago campus. That's where he met Natalie. And they look at Hyde Park as a college town because the university is there. And the thought is, well, I live here and also college students like to smoke marijuana. I'm in an ideal place. And uh, and incidentally, I, I'm also a Hyde Parker. And uh, turns out I live walking distance from Angelo. Oh, you would be in his delivery range. I would be. If someone is that lazy, (laughs) that's their uh, idea, that you're too lazy to go out and buy the marijuana. That's So I'm their customer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a solid business idea, right? Delivering legal weed to lazy college students in the comfort of their own apartments. College students over 21, of course. Except even with the opportunities afforded by the social equity law, Angelo is still hitting obstacles in the search for investors. Investors who are willing to work with somebody who has a criminal record. So there, w- there will be, you know, grants given out, no interest loans, um, those type of things that will be given out. But we still, um, for what we're trying to do, we, we still need major capital. After a quick break, we'll hear more about Angelo's path forward and whether or not social equity is a promise that can be kept. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. 
Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. All right, so Illinois passed this law to legalize recreational weed. And one of its goals is to legalize weed in a way that benefits black and brown communities. Illinois is not the first place where this idea has taken root. In fact, some people feel so strongly about it in states like New York and New Jersey that they're willing to wait on legalization until it's done in a way that is equitable. But that's easier in theory than practice. Massachusetts, for example, asks local governments to set aside some business licenses for people of color. But as that law has gone into effect, very few people have come forward to apply for those licenses. It turns out that criminalizing certain communities for decades makes it harder for those people to trust the government. Not to mention, even the people who have applied are still on the hook for thousands of dollars in startup money. Illinois also has steep startup costs, even for social equity applicants. And that's not the only snag. The state has defined social equity applicants by people who've lived in certain zip codes for certain periods of time, or people who have been impacted by the the war on drugs, either through being arrested or having family members who've been arrested for certain types of offenses, etc. This is Matthew Brewer. He's a lawyer, and he's a leading black entrepreneur in Chicago's medical marijuana market. His organization, called Seed Illinois, that's an acronym for Social Equity and Economic Diversity, tries to connect black and brown cannabis entrepreneurs with investors. But the elephant in the room for a lot of folks, people at Seed, for example, is that black and brown people don't just by definition qualify as social equity applicants. Meaning someone like Matthew, who lives in a more affluent neighborhood in Chicago, doesn't qualify. You pick the zip code and you can create proxies for race. But when you do that, you lose uh, lots of people. I live in the West Loop. I'm not a social equity applicant by definition, uh, though I have family members who've been arrested. And so depending on what the law means by family members, maybe I am. But there's no question that I directly and indirectly have been impacted by these types of laws. Laws like this rely on this really vague term, quote unquote, people who have been affected by the war on drugs. Natalie Moore, our friend at WBEZ, says it gets really complicated trying to determine why certain people qualify and others don't. Are you keeping someone like him and other black businessmen who have acumen, who have access to capital, from joining in. And he's not knocking that you right. shouldn't have, you know, guys like Angelo in. But guys like Angelo need money and they uh-huh. need to be able to partner with people. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's such an interesting idea, right? Is like, do you stop being affected by the war on drugs at some point? Like if you move to a different neighborhood? 
Right. I mean, if he's driving in a fancy car, does that mean the police aren't going to stop him? Does that mean that he doesn't experience racism, even though he has a JD and an MBA? No. So where does this leave Angelo and his goal of starting Green Dynasty? I think what makes me nervous is the fact that I know that people are looking at me now. So I never really had that before. People are coming to me asking me, you know, like about my opinion and what I think. And I've never had that um, because I've never been made to feel like my opinions were valid. Um, especially when I first started talking about cannabis, like we in general, people just laughed like, oh, like, yeah, OK. Like, <laughs> like, nah, dude, like you realize how much money this is. You realize like what this can do. And let's just forget the money just for me right. personally and my health, like literally. Like if it wasn't for weed, man, like because I was pretty messed up, like like I was they messed me up, like for real. He sees so much potential in weed. Seriously, he kept telling us that he could see the potential even when he was a kid. And that's why he started dealing in the first place. But that early introduction to weed ended up being an early introduction to the criminal justice system, something that's left a lasting impression on him. Do you have a lot of other friends that are sort of in a same situation? Uh, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you think that says about how the war on drugs has affected like your community and the people around you? It, it, it's it it kind of makes you feel like it was targeted a little bit targeted how like just targeted for like my people and my culture because i don't really see you know that affecting too many other cultures i, I just don't mm-hmm. I, I really i just don't see it if angelo feels like the war on drugs targeted the black community then it stands to reason that legalizing weed should also target the black community right It might help if we reframed this whole movement. When the law passed, one Illinois lawmaker referred to it as reparations. Natalie says that idea is about the long game. So this idea that the law is reparations, it's about repairing a harm. Tell me what that what kind of harm does this law aim to repair. Yeah, so when you think about reparations, you think about an apology, you think about reform, you think about restoration of that harm. Um, And reparations doesn't mean that you have to cut a check to someone. Right. So when someone says, a state lawmaker says, think about this as reparations, it's looking at how can we repair harm to the community. We can't allow a bunch of rich white people, rich corporations to swoop in and make money off of communities when you have people who were sent to prison for smoking or for selling marijuana. Where do you think, where in Chicago do you think that this law could make the biggest impact? I have thought about what is it going to look like in this city? when marijuana is legal? Is there going to be a dispensary next to my job? Is there going to be one walking distance from where I live? I think the hope is that you get some business owners, you get some jobs. I don't personally think that the economic vitality of Black segregated neighborhoods is going to hinge upon 
social equity in marijuana. Right. I don't think it's going to clear vacant lots out, but maybe some storefronts won't be empty. And then it creates a ripple effect. So I, I don't think it's about, okay, here's this one business that transformed this area. But if that marijuana business could be a catalyst for other businesses to come that could be successful. And Angelo is ready to be that catalyst. He hopes to launch Green Dynasty on November 1st. And since recreational weed sales won't be online yet by then, Green Dynasty will start out delivering tobacco products, rolling papers, and CBD products until then. But while his past is behind him, Angelo says it's his life experience that will not only help him run a successful business, but also provide jobs to people who have faced the same challenges. You know, some people could say, like, oh, like, I understand. Like, nah, you don't understand. You don't understand what this man had to go through. You know, why is it so hard for him to just get basic stuff that he needs to just mm-hmm. live a basic life? You don't understand that. Um, I can I can actually honestly say I understand that because I lived through it. I lived through the, the nightmares. I lived through the terrors. And that's what makes me more inclined to speak on this um, because nobody else can speak from my perspective, I don't think, because mm-hmm. I've seen both sides. There's something really fascinating about examining this movement for social equity from where I'm sitting here in Colorado. When Colorado voted to legalize recreational weed in 2012, we just didn't think about it. That amendment contained no language dealing with people who had been harmed by the war on drugs. There was no leg up for people of color or no program to erase old pot convictions. And now, years later, Colorado has hundreds of licensed pot dispensaries all over the state, and only about two are owned by Black people. Now, I don't want to single out Colorado. It's, of course, not the only state with that problem. But there is an important question to be asked when states legalize. Why? Is it, is it just for the tax money? Is it to create jobs? If so, jobs for whom? Is it a brand new idea or is it just a brand new chapter in our long, complex relationship with weed and the people who use weed? And if legalization doesn't look backwards at all, if we only focus on the industry and the economic development opportunities, does legalization simply recreate the same unequal system that came before? On Something is a Labor of Love, reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad, with reporting from Natalie Moore. Produced and mixed by Brad Turner and Rebecca Romberg. Our editors for this episode are Curtis Fox and Rachel Estabrook. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Our executive producers are Rachel Estabrook and Kevin Dale. On Something is made possible by lots of talented people like Francie Swidler, Kim Wynn, Dave Burdick, Allison Borden, Matt Hers, and Iris Gottlieb. 
As a reminder, you can always reach out and leave us a voicemail with your story ideas or your personal experiences, or if you just want to say hi. The number to call is 720-420-6587. That's 720-420-6587. You can also shoot us an email at humans at onsomething.org. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. I can hear it. Uh, your angle changing while you talk. Okay. So. Um, I just have like a natural habit in swivel chairs of just doing this. Well, if you'd like me to get you a good hard stool. (laughs) (laughs) That can be arranged. Support for On Something comes from Extract Labs. Based in Boulder, Colorado, Extract Labs is dedicated to introducing consumers to the use of CBD through product education. More about products grown from American hemp at extractlabs.com. Thanks also to the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in FDA compliance, civil litigation, criminal defense, and the cannabinoid industry. Learn more today at therodmanlawgroup.com. From P-